All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Ephesians. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter one, where basically we were dealing with Paul's praise of God for his plan of salvation. And when we looked at chapter one, we saw a lot of um, verbiage that dealt with how all of this, that is God's plan of salvation to the which Paul was thanking God for all of the language of predetermination, pre-purpose and pre-planning. That is this salvation God planned. He pre-planned these things. This salvation God pre-planned and predetermined a particular people who would receive this great salvation. And this even salvation, God planned, pre-planned, pre-purposed the greatness of the inheritance of this salvation. And finally, God pre-planned and purposed the means, that is, how these predetermined people would receive this great salvation, that is, this plan in the person, in the works, of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of these things to the which Paul gives glory to God for, okay? Now, also we remember in chapter one, we talked about these prepositions. Check out the previous two videos. The prepositions that Paul use, uses, and so we need to be careful when we begin to look at these prepositions, how Paul talks, uses the preposition we, and that is the collective we, speaking of all of God's people, Jews and Gentiles. And then Paul would use the we particularly to speak of the Jews. And he would point out you with respect to the Gentiles, that is the Ephesians. And so it is important that we recognize how the shifting or the changing of these prepositions, Paul is making principal and particular points. That is speaking of we, the Gentiles, we who were, who have the covenant promises that God had given a, a particular group of people, namely the Jews. I'm sorry. I hope I said Jews at first when I talked about the we, but we, the Jews, and then he'll begin to talk about the Gentiles, you, that is you Ephesians. Why? They were at one time, what? Foreigners away from the covenant promises and blessings that God had given the Jewish people. And Paul is going to talk about that even later on as we move through chapters two and three. But the point is we need to be aware of the prepositional shifts that Paul makes in this particular epistle. So, as he finished chapter one, and this is where we're going to move into chapter two, that issue of praising God for his great salvation that he has accomplished for his people in Christ Jesus. Paul begins to talk about or elucidate that salvation, that work of salvation that God alone accomplished apart from any merit, any deservedness of any of the groups, whether Jew or Gentile. Okay. So now with all of that, let's just simply get into chapter two and we're going to look at verses one through nine as Paul talks about this great undeserved salvation that God has given all his people, both Jew and Gentile. 
and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them. We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Okay. So now as Paul opens up, remember we talked about those, uh, preposition, not, not prepositional, but pronoun distinction. Now these distinctions are very important. Notice as he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. So he points to you Ephesians, that is, you Gentiles were dead in trespasses and sins. So as Paul, we know the full context that he's going to talk about. We're going to really highlight that in verses five and eight. That is this wonderful salvation that God had prepurposed and predestined this great inheritance of this goodness and kindness and favor of God. All of this is not due to you because of any deed, any worth, any merit within yourself. So Paul begins to strip away any sense of pride or self-worth or deservedness in these Gentiles to feel good about themselves that God bless me with this salvation because in some sense or another, I deserve it or I have lived in a manner that is worthy of these things in his sense whatsoever. But Paul says, oh no, in the contrary part, you were dead in sin and trespasses. And so he's going to even develop that thing as we move through the text. But let's just deal with this exegetically when he says what your state, your spiritual state is dead. Your spiritual state is dead. Such a state that is derived because of your sins and trespasses or your spiritual state in your sins and trespasses. That is to speak as Paul begins to, as we move forward to this, uh, 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 uh this salvation, this unmerited, undeserved salvation, Paul says, in reality, you were dead when even before the gospel of the saving gospel of God's grace came to you, your state was dead in a sense. And this is, this is what we deal with the spiritual status, spiritual status here, the spiritual status of the Gentiles to the which they should not have any sense of boastful pride, but that they should be thanking God for his salvation. When God came to me with the gospel of this grace, man, I was a mess. What kind of mess were you in? Dead. I was spiritually dead. God had to awaken me. God had to give me eyes to eyes to see ears to hear. Why? Because even in and of myself, my spiritual state was dead. 
And if you are dead, you are unable to respond to God, respond to God's goodness and grace. And so all of these things that are liveness, and that's when I, the, I like the way the King James translate, he quickened you, he made you alive. Why? It was necessary for God to do these things in you because you were dead. So therefore, Paul is really building and cementing the case that not only could you not do anything to be worthy of God's salvation, you can't even respond to God's voice because you are altogether dead. Your spiritual state is dead. And how? In sins and trespasses. But let's continue on. So what he says, what the sin and trespasses as he begins to uh, elucidate on what this actually is, uh, that you walked in the idea of walk means we all understand it. This is the man in which you lived according to the state of this sinful world. And that's what he means by the course of this world, the age of this world, the sinfulness of this world. And we can understand that when we just simply look all around us in the sexual immorality, the hedonistic, uh, 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 uh manner of our customs, age, our world around us, the perversion, the sinfulness of this present world. And he said, you lived in the same manner as they did according to what? That's when he talks about prince of the power of the air, spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You lived in the same sinful manner just like they did all of these things being influenced by the powers of Satan himself and his spiritual uh, uh, cohorts, that is the demon spirits. And that's what he means by the, uh, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this present age. This is Satan in his sinfulness, more so in his, in his sinful influence in humanity and as Satan influenced humanity, thus humanity responded with obedience. And that is they obeyed the sinful uh, influences of these demonic spirits. So this is the influence that is external. This is what the influence that is external. But he continued in verse number three to say what? Among them too, we also formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Two things, the we, now notice the transitional shift, the we. So at first he said in verse number one, you, you Gentiles, but what? Verse number three, we, we Jews. So notice that pronoun. Not only did, were you living in your, in the deadness of your sins, but even what we Jews too also lived in the deadness of our sin. So it brings, he's still building that same idea of deservedness, this beautiful, gracious salvation that God is giving to all in, in the same sense. when we talk, talk about, talk about, and I know we haven't dealt with that, but it is the same principle 
point that Paul makes in the book of Romans in chapters one and two, and that Romans one, one, two, and three, that is Jews have not lived in accordance to God's, uh, uh, glory according to God's righteous standards. Gentiles have not lived in accordance to God's righteous standards. So therefore both Jew and Greek have failed the glory of God living according to the righteous standards of God. Thus he can say in three and 23 Romans all have sinned, all whom all Jews and Gentiles, both groups have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the same idea that Paul makes here in Ephesians. What? In talking about the sinfulness. You Gentiles, verse number one, were dead in your sins and trespasses, just like we Jews, what? We too indulge the sinfulness of our own flesh. And he begins to say the lust of our flesh. And that brings, brings about the idea in totality the sinful fleshly desires, the desires that come from our fallen flesh, our fallen natures, especially as it pertains to sexual immorality, all forms of sexual immoralities. You need a definition of that? Look at Leviticus 18 and Leviticus chapter 20. But lust of the flesh. So even we Jews lived in the formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the mind, the sinful imaginations that dwell in all of us. And we were by nature, fools say by nature, the children of wrath, just like the rest just like the Gentiles, just like anybody else. So he brings in this all inclusive statement. What? Because he's getting ready to build upon the point that what? No one is deserving of the beauty of the wonderful salvation that God has, God has given to the elect. He's building, he's pushing forward that crescendo that this is due to the kindness and the goodness of God, or as he's simply going to say, the grace of God. Why? As now he is highlighting the sinfulness of everybody, the sinfulness of the Gentiles, the sinfulness of the Jews that God has chosen to give this salvation to. No one deserves these things. But why? The very nature of who we all are, sinful, sinful, fulfilling the desires of flesh and the mind, the very nature of who we are deserves not the salvation of God, but the wrath of God. Okay, so now let's continue. So verse number four, but God being rich in mercy of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, what did God do? He made us alive together with Christ for by, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that 
in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So let me stop there so because the statement can get kind of thick. So now he is arriving at the point that he is trying to make. What? Notice the contrast that we have. The, us, Jew and Gentile, being dead in sins and trespassing, walking to the course, uh, uh, formerly walking to the course of this world, being influenced by the demonic powers of Satan, living an unrighteous lifestyle, but nevertheless, what? Even though we were this way, God demonstrated his love and his kindness for bring, by bringing his salvation to a people such as that. So you see the contrast that Paul is trying to make this salvation given to a people unworthy who have not merited this. So you can see why Paul in chapter one began to praise and glorify God for this wonderful gift of salvation. But let's get to the thing. God rich. So notice it uses the strong word, but, but it is not so much a strong word, but Allah, but it uses day, which can be and, but also even kind of like that. But so he begins to simply say what? He begins to move forward to simply to say, God rich in mercy. And you can understand it rich in what? Mercy. Mercy means undeserved kindness. The salvation that God is giving us is an undeserved kindness. Why? Because we were children of wrath. That's what we deserved, but God did not give us what we deserved. What he gave us was mercy. He gave us his kindness and showed us his what? Great love in which he loved us. So it shows that God has purposed a love for this particular people, people who do not deserve God's love, but nevertheless, he chose to put his love upon us. And then he begins to say, what? How did God demonstrate this love? That even when we were dead, notice that, dead, dead, that's the spiritual state. In our transgressions, God made us alive. So notice this, there is no possible way for us to be deserving of any goodness from God whatsoever. And again, that uh, unresponsive state, you is, that is absolutely nothing that we did. Why? We could not even respond to the gospel. If you lived, that's the point. Let me, let me say it this way. We lived treacherous lives deserving of death and God's judgment. Okay. That's number one. Number two, we were dead. That is unable to respond. If you touch a dead body, if you stab a dead body, if you shoot a dead body, it will not move. It will not respond. It will not respond to something that you did. Why? Because it's dead. Dead means unable to respond because of the state. So what is he saying? 
we at one time were unable to respond to anything of God. Why? We ourselves were dead. So God had to do something. What did God do? He made us alive. God enabled us to respond to the message of the gospel. That is, he gave us what? Eyes to see, ears to hear the gospel and respond. So what is Paul doing? He's making a case that even when we responded to the gospel, God had to enable us to respond. So the case is made wide. What? You did nothing. Even when the gospel came to you, you still couldn't respond to the gospel until God made you alive. So where is boasting? Where is anything that you did? You were dead. So that's the point. So now we are in Paul's crescendo of what he's talking about. What? We're dead in these things. It took the power of God to make us alive with Christ. Then he, then he makes that statement by grace, you have been saved. Now I'm going to come to this statement here in a more didactic way by grace. You have been saved because we're going to see this set, this same statement being this same statement being made again later in verse number eight. And that's when we're going to explore this statement and then we'll end the video there. So then he says, we have been saved by grace. So in continuing with the context, he is saying what? This is the unmerited favor of God in saving us. Why? Because we did things worthy of God's wrath. And even when God brought the gospel of salvation, we still couldn't respond to it. Why? Because we were dead. God had to make us alive in order that we might respond to the gospel. And he did this according to his grace, by his own goodness and his own kindness. Okay. So he has laid the foundation that we have no room for boasting. So that's when he's going to, that's the climax, no room for boasting. All of this is due to the goodness and kindness of God. So now let's finish. Let's bring the, uh, uh, the, the video to a close. So he continued on to talk about, I don't know if I read this part, but this God had did the benefits. This is basically what we're talking about. The benefits of God's uh, uh, gracious act. What? Raising us up with him, with Christ Jesus, seating us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is, these are the benefits of the believer. Raising us up, raising us up from deadness to new life and even raising us up to the eternity with God. And he did all of these things in Christ Jesus, right? Then, and I talk about that in Christ Jesus, but so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But in other words, God was demonstrating one of his qualities in our salvation. 
What is one of the qualities of God that God was demonstrating? God is letting all see his, the quality of his kindness. How can you see that God is kind to a people who I should kill a people who are deserving of my wrath by the deeds that they have done, even by their very nature to a people who are dead, unable to respond to any goodness, to any kindness, to the message of the gospel of Jesus, to such a people, I made them alive by allowing them to hear by opening their ears when others were closed, by opening their eyes when others were closed. And I made them able to respond to the gospel of grace so that they can inherit this wonderful salvation. Am I not kind? Am I not good? Or as Jesus said to the rich young ruler, there is none good but God. So what Paul is saying here is what? God, this is the evidence, the proof of God's kindness to a world that knows not the world that deserves God's judgment. Okay. But anyway, so let me get back to this thing. And God did all of these things in Christ. Now, this is what we call a, a positional truth. That is we are not deserving of anything other than death for the wages of sin is death. And what all have seen and fallen short of God's glory. We deserve death, but in Christ Jesus, we have all of these wonderful benefits, the benefit and everything that flows forth from salvation. But it is due to our position in Christ. And that's why one of Paul's favorite, uh, one of Paul's favorite uh, prepositional uh, uh, statements is in Christ or in Christ Jesus. That is, Jesus is the only one to, uh, to, by, to whom all of these good things of God is due. Jesus, by virtue of his sinlessness, him having lived, living a sinless life, him as being the only one who is well-pleasing to God in every way. He did no sin. No deceitful word was ever found in his mouth. Jesus is due. He is owed all of these wonderful things by whom he is and the life that he lived. You got that? So therefore Jesus gets all of these wonderful benefits, but God has made a plan whereby we having faith in Jesus. Do you believe in my son, who he is and what he has done? And if you believe in him, I, God, therefore place you, I put you in Jesus and therefore all the benefits, all of these graciousness, this salvation and these good things being seated in the heavenly have been the inheritors of all of the wonderful things that God has set forth. You will get these things because you have been placed 
in my son. And this is what I mean by positional truth. We as God's people receive, inherit these things because we are, as Paul states, what? We are in Christ, not because we deserve these things or have lived in such a way that we should inherit these things. No, but because Jesus has done them on our behalf and being in him, we now inherit the things that belong to Christ Jesus. Okay. All right. So let's get ready to bring the video to a close as Paul hits. He's already touched the crescendo of what he's trying to say, but now let's get to that absolute climax of what Paul is saying as we deal with verses eight and nine. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Okay. So now we finally hit that climaxing statement. That is what all of this wonderful thing that God has been talking about, Paul. In God's gift of salvation, in salvation, God's salvation, that wonderful inheritance and all of the things that God will give us, seating us in the heavenly places and the wonderful gift of being in the eternal presence of God. All of these things are due not to ourselves in any way, but to the grace of God. And therefore he says what? For by grace, that is because of grace, because of the unmerited, undeserved favor of God, we have been saved. And that translation is such a perfect translation, but we're going to get into that a little bit further. We have been saved through faith. That is, that's what I've been talking about. That plan of God. What is the plan of God? to believe in the person and works of Jesus. Do you believe in Christ Jesus? This is the faith. Do you believe in Christ Jesus? Then what? Then you are saved. And this is not because of something you did, but because it is the plan and the gracious gift of God. Grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so what, again, the emphasis, not of yourselves. And I like that the, what we train, the gift of God, actually in Greek, it says of God, the gift of God, the gift that is, he is emphasizing that our salvation is, it, that gift is of God and not from anything that you're doing. So he is emphasizing what the, 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 where the gift, where salvation comes from salvation comes from not of a thing that we do or we merit, it comes of God. And it is what the Dorian, it is that gift that comes from God and not 
verse number nine, as a result of works to the end of what? For the purpose, what? So that no one can ever boast in how good he is, how he has lived. Salvation comes from God and by God alone. And no one can ever say, I have done anything worthy of this gracious gift that God has given me. And this takes my mind. Let me say something very quickly. Let me do an aside to uh, one of the things that I used to hear as a child. And I used to hear sometimes preachers would say, well, why do you, how do you know that you are saved? How do you know that you are saved? And then I would hear people sometimes say, because the things that I do, I don't do anymore. Places I go, I don't go anymore. And the things that I used to say, I don't say anymore. In other words, they're saying that they are saved by works. And this is the very opposite of what Paul is trying to say. Our salvation is not due to us in any way. We are by nature are children of wrath, but what God by the merit, by, by the gracious and efficacious desire and kindness of God, we are saved and not because of anything that we do always know that there is absolutely nothing that you can or have or will ever do to be saved. This is due to God. What did that Greek statement say? Of God, the gift. So uh, bringing that little point to a close, uh, like it was in my past, Never make the error to think that we are worthy of salvation or we do things or that our acts participate in our salvation. The only thing that the way we live do is literally evidence that we have been saved. It is the evidence that we are saved. It does not grant us or give us or promote our salvation in any way. All of this comes from God. Now, but let me bring the clo closing part. There is another statement that I want to deal with. Remember I talked about earlier in verse number five, by grace, you have been saved. Also in verse number eight, for by grace, you have been saved. And those statements are almost literally parallel in, uh, in the Greek rendering of that statement. Now we want to explore that. For by grace, you have been saved. What is Paul saying? So here, let's, we're going to look at verse number eight within itself. The, the, the verbal uh, sense is the same. Uh, in verse number five, karatieste says so minoi. All right. Uh, by grace, you are saved. And also in verse number eight. So verse number eight is what we want to look at too. Uh, that is in particular. Okay, that is, and we translate that, for by grace you have been saved. Now, literally in the Greek, the translation is, for by grace you are. And that sesomenoi is a participle. It is a participle acting in a verbal sense because you know participle can also act in like nouns and participle can act like verbs, okay? But here it is acting, they're translated 
as a verbal participle. And so they simply translated, you have been saved. But the important aspect of this verb is, is that this verbal participle here says so minoi, is that it is a perfect participle. Now, the reason why I'm spending time on that is what it indicates. This participle, this verbal form, is in the perfect tense in the Greek. That is, the perfect tense indicates an action that has occurred sometime in the past. At some point in the past, in the indefinite past, this action happened. And the action continues indefinitely into the future. The action happened in the past at some time, but this action continues indefinitely into the future. So what does that say? What is the action? The action is our salvation. That is at some point or another, we experience this salvation in the past. And tell me about this salvation. This salvation, due to that perfect tense that Paul uses, continues indefinitely into the future. That is, this salvation of ours never comes to an end. This deals with what we call the principle of eternal security. That is, once a person is saved, once a person is truly saved, such an individual never, ever, ever loses their salvation. And this we can derive strongly from that participial usage of Paul's, wor Paul's word here. That's why we talked about that perfect tense. And I don't want to confuse you, but I want to enlighten you. The eternal security of the believer once you are saved, that salvation is kept for you by the power and will of God indefinitely. You will never lose your salvation. You will never, you cannot backslide because backslide infers the loss of salvation. That is scripturally completely false and not true. First of all, you did nothing to gain your salvation. Notice we dealt with that in verses one through uh, five. Paul, Paul's whole point. You were dead. You were children of wrath. You didn't, you did absolutely nothing to gain your salvation, to get saved. It is what? The gift of God. And as you did nothing to gain your salvation, also you do nothing to lose or even forfeit your salvation. Your salvation is eternally secure. And why is this the case? This is a gift of God's grace for by grace. What? Beautiful translation in ASB. You have been, and always the reason why I say translation in NASB, because when they when they want to, when, when the NASB wants you to understand 
perfect tense Greek verbs. That is something done in the past with continuing results in the future. They always bring in those uh, that helper, the helper verbs have, have, have. So have been saved, something that continues into the future. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is simply saying that this grace of salvation that God has given us by the usage of this perfect tense verb had something done in the past with continuing results indefinitely into the future. Salvation, our salvation is eternally secure in Christ Jesus. You never have to worry about the loss of your salvation because God has designed the plan of faith that it should be secured in Christ Jesus. Again, that sense of what our positional status that we have due to the person and works in Christ Jesus. And so he just simply says it in the end, what? so that nobody can boast. So our salvation is due, and it takes it all the way back to chapter one, that we should what? We should need praise and thank God for the wonderful work, his wonderful work, his wonderful plan, his wonderful purpose, his wonderful predetermination, his wonderful predestination of believers, his wonderful grace of our salvation in Christ. And therefore it strips us of any boasting, any pride because God has done it all. And how did he do it in Christ Jesus? Okay. Enough of that. That was longer than I had anticipated, but uh, let me throw a little aside because a lot of the people get nervous. You can't lose yourself. You can't use it. Paul is not talking about the rest. He's not trying to get into how you live and things of that nature. Uh, no, as I, I've already uh, uh, hinted at the point is how you live is simply an indication on whether or not you truly have been saved. And we can see that in first John, he who does, who does righteousness is righteous. That's the proof that he, indeed he is righteous. That's the proof that indeed he is saved. Hereby do we know the children of God and the children of the devil and because of the life that they live. So we're not getting into all of that. But Paul is just simply talking about here, the security of the believer. And indeed, this is a wonderful thing for us to praise God. That what? Because what? even as he's going to talk about in the book of Romans, we still fall short of the grace of God. What did Jesus say to his disciples, to those who believe in him? When you pray, say what? Forgive us of our sin. What did John say in first John? And if we as believers confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We still, even as believers, sin and we have need of forgiveness. What if when we sinned, God just simply threw us out, turned his back, said, no longer are you saved. No longer do you have this wonderful gift that I've, no, 
That's not what he said. That's the beauty of Ephesians 2 and 8. That's the beauty of eternal security. That's the beauty of that perfect tense verb. Our salvation is secure and God never takes it away. All right, enough, enough, enough. Thanks guys for joining me with that and we give glory and thanks to God for his wonderful gift of salvation. But thanks for joining me with that particular teaching. Uh, join me next time as we continue on in Ephesians 2. And of course, if this lesson has been a blessing to you and if God so touches your heart, only if God touches your heart, support this ministry. There is always a link in the description that you can use to support this ministry. But nevertheless, also too, give a like the, the thumb up stuff that we always hear about the YouTube video. It kind of helps disseminate this teachings to others so that it can kind of spread across the YouTube stuff. You guys know that better than I do, but give a likes and a thumbs up to the video. But anyway, guys, thank you for all of your support and God bless each and every one of you. And we look forward to teaching and seeing you on the next time. God bless.